When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did he go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did he go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did he go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. He will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to hear it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. One of the great joys of my job is to take weddings. I actually enjoy taking weddings, and just at the moment at St. Helens, I am Mr. Wedding. I seem to be taking weddings most Saturdays, which is a great delight. And a few weeks ago at a reception, I found myself sitting next to a retired brigadier. He had fought in some of the British Army's most intense encounters of the last 20 years, Iraq, Afghanistan, Kosovo, and before that was in Northern Ireland and so forth. And over dinner, on, he- on hearing that I was at uh, work for the church, he said to me that one of the things that had struck him as he's been in the Middle East was the presence of the Mandeans. Now, I'd never heard of the Mandeans, and he informed me that they are a sect of sixty to 100,000 people who still follow the teaching of John the Baptist. And then I asked his permission if I could uh, use this conversation on occasions like this. But then he said uh, that one of the things that had struck him on encountering such a number of Mandeans in Iraq was the seismic impact of John the Baptist and of Jesus Christ on world history, that there should still be 60 to 100,000 people following John the Baptist over 2,000 years later. Well, I suppose all of us are used to the idea of what we might call turning points in world history, whether it's AI upcoming or the World Wide Web or penicillin or the Berlin Wall or Shrek or whatever it may be, we consider to be a major turning point in world history. And we're all used to a new generation now of secular thinkers, Jordan Peterson, Tom Holland, Louise Perry, Mary Harrington, and so forth, talking about the seismic impact of Jesus Christ as a turning point in history. But Jesus would want us to push it further, and I think he would want us to see his coming as the turning point in world history. And and this afternoon, as we start this new series, I want us to consider Jesus' claim not simply to be a turning point, a seismic moment, 
but thee. I want to push it further, and I want to push it further because I think that's what Matthew, the eyewitness of Jesus, commissioned by Jesus to teach us with the teaching of Jesus. I think Matthew will want to push it further because towards the end of the piece today, in fact, sprinkled throughout it, there is not simply the historical observation that Jesus is the turning point of history, but also a request for us to think of our own place personally within that event. So let's look, first of all, at the works of the Christ and the turning point of history, which we find in verses 1 through 6 of the reading that we just had read by Felicity. It's there on page 27, the works of the Christ. It is a new section in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel is divided up into five major blocks, each new block introduced with when Jesus had finished his instruction. And so we start on a new piece, and the theme of the whole piece is the advance of the kingly rule of Jesus. We're going, we're going to see that as we go forward. But the question of John the Baptist there in verses 2 and 3, well, it's not at all surprising, and yet it is quite surprising. So have a look at it there. When John the Baptist heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now, in one sense, we can understand this. In another, it appears to make no sense at all. Uh, John was a figure of international fame. I'm sure you know that. His work primarily focused in a place called Aeon, near Salim, to the northwest of Jerusalem, halfway between the Sea of Galilee and Jerusalem. But the Baptist had attracted followers from Syria, from Jerusalem, from Judea, from the regions far and beyond Salim uh, there by the Jordan. And he had pointed to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, this is he of whom it is written, he, of whom I spoke, he who comes after me was before me. Uh, I am not worthy even to tie up his shoelaces. So great is he. So in one sense, it makes no sense at all that here is the Baptist asking, are you the one to come? Or shall we look for another? Because, I mean, they were cousins. Uh, his mother, Elizabeth, the Baptist, uh, knew Mary. Ma Mary identified Jesus as the one. And so John the Baptist should know that he is the one to come. And yet he's... In another sense, it makes all the sense in the world. Just look at it there. When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ... And so the substance of the Baptist message was that God himself was to come in person to visit his creation. The Baptist declared himself to be the voice announcing the arrival of the creator into planet Earth. And yet here he is in prison. Uh, languishing in Herod the Tetrarch's Caesarean dungeon, some arrival of God some breaking in of the kingdom of God, some fulfillment of centuries of expectation. I'm here in prison. Are you really the one who is to come? Or, or actually, should we look for somebody else? I mean, it would be great to hear the tone, wouldn't it, of the Baptist question as he asks it. Are you the one who is to come? Shall we look for somebody else? How come I'm here in prison? 
Is this really what the kingdom of heaven looks like? I mean, we might call it the the question of the bewildered disciple, and I guess it's a question that so many will have asked down through the centuries in so many different circumstances. Maybe even somebody listening, uh, listening today is asking precisely that question. Can I really believe that Jesus is the Christ? Is this really it? Now, Jesus' response in verses 4 through 6 is a response of utter genius. We could probably spend several weeks simply exploring Jesus' response. It is also, if not true, a response of unspeakable arrogance. We've already looked at chapters 8 through 10, which precede this section. And there, Matthew charts for us the arrival of King Jesus. And we see in chapters 8 through 10, the works of the Christ. Jesus heals the leper. He heals the centurion's servant. Peter's mother-in-law is healed. No um, post-healing recovery. She just gets straight up and gets on with life. The crowds flock to Jesus. The hospitals are empty. They bring all their sick. He heals them all. He calms the storm. Uh, Two demon-possessed men, the devil, and, and Jesus has absolute power to cast the demons out. The paralytic, and, and Jesus commands him, get up, pick up your bed, and, and go home. He gets up. The ruler's daughter, who is dead, Jesus brings to life. The woman with bleeding, two blind men, the mute. So we've had kind of two chapters of the works of, of the Christ. And, and so when Jesus responds in verse 4, Jesus answered John the Baptist's disciples, go and tell what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Well, we've got all the evidence. Look at the evidence. Notice it's not just what you see, but what you hear. It's his teaching as well. Anybody who's paid attention to Jesus' teaching and seen how it has impacted the whole of the Western world I mean, Tom Holland's quite an interesting person to listen to on this, isn't it? When he talks about, does he believe Jesus existed? He said, the thing which persuades him more than anything else is the teaching of Jesus, which has just held. Go and tell him what you see and hear. So simply as a straight statement, combined with the evidence that the disciples have witnessed, this is enough for the bewildered disciple, you would think. Where do you go if, you're, if you have the doubts of the bewildered disciple? Uh, I go to the evidence. There it is. They're not the works of any ordinary person. Uh, they're things done publicly. You know, back in the first century, dead people didn't get out of their coffins. Sometimes people think, oh, well, they were easily persuaded in those days, and it was very easy for them to believe that a dead person get out, get out of his coffin. Did you know it didn't happen then in the first century either? And everybody knew these individuals, and they were public miracles. But I want us to do some careful analysis here. I feel confident. I mean, you're all analysts, and you've come here, I hope, with your analytical brains in full uh, motion. Uh, I want us to do some careful analysis of what Jesus actually says here, because I think you will agree with me that it is a stroke of genius. 
verses four through six are a compilation of references taken from across the teaching of the prophet Isaiah. John the Baptist introduced himself with a quote from the prophet Isaiah. I am the voice coming to announce the arrival of God. I am that voice. And now Jesus takes a compilation of references from Isaiah 35, 25, 61, and 8. He forges them together. And John the Baptist, you can imagine in them hearing this back in his prison. He's got enough to think about now for the next several months as he ponders what Jesus says. I was trying to work out which is the most dramatic reference from the prophet Isaiah. I mean, Isaiah 35, let me read you Isaiah 35, a little piece there. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. Then the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame man will leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute will sing for joy. A highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness and the redeemed shall be on it. There's a guy called Alec Mateer. He was a scholar into the middle to the late of the 20th century, probably the leading scholar, biblical scholar in the prophet Isaiah. Ever you can get hold of any of his books, they're really well worth getting. He was also a church leader, so he was used to speaking to the scholars and he was used to speaking to people like us. Um, sorry if that offends you, you think you're a scholar, but we'll have to move on swiftly. Um, I, I, Matthias describes Isaiah 35 as the greatest poem of salvation in the whole of the Old Testament. And Jesus uses exactly those words. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. But then Isaiah 25 and 26 pushes it further than these miracles of healing. Isaiah 25 and 26 talks about a day when the shroud that covers all humanity, that shroud of death, will be removed. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake and sing for joy. The earth will give birth to the dead. And so Jesus takes this Isaiah 35, the greatest poem of salvation in all of the Old Testament, and combines it with Isaiah 25, the resurrection of the dead. Isaiah is a book of two halves. And at the end of Jesus' statement here, he pushes forward to the end of the second half of the book of Isaiah. Now, the last section of the prophet Isaiah is very carefully structured. Right at its center is the piece that Jesus quotes finally at the end of verse 5. The poor have good news preached to them. It's, it's a verse that goes like this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And so these promises of Isaiah as you know, anointed warrior king coming to proclaim good news to the poor as sacrificial servant that find their climax in Isaiah 61, uh, Jesus just picks the central point of the final section, the central verses that pull the whole thing together. It's a stroke of kind of biblical, literary genius. People study the prophet Isaiah for decades. And uh, you know, if, they're, if they're lucky or very clever or particularly insightful, they come to see these things. And Jesus is asked a question 
Isaiah 35, Isaiah 25, Isaiah 61, Isaiah 8. Go and think about that, John. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Um, yesterday, I, I run a sort of Bible study by way of preparation. Don't tell them this, but they're basically guinea pigs. And we have a study in one of the major banks here with uh, Christians there, which is always terrific, fun, and really great. And we were doing a study on this passage yesterday. And in the group, there is a grandfather. Um, and uh, uh, he married very, very young, and his children are got married very, very young, and, and so he happens to be a, a grandfather already. And uh, he's a very senior banker in, um, in one of the leading banks. And he likened what Jesus is doing here to a Disney movie. So I asked him which Disney movies he was particularly familiar with, and actually he listed quite a number. Uh, so you can see what he's been doing with his grandchildren. But uh, he, he made the point that Disney brilliantly managed to address the adult with significant philosophical themes, whilst at the same time speaking about the same thing to children in a way that they can understand. Well, I have to say, I've not myself personally seen Jesus kind of in the same league as Walt Disney, but, but it was a really good point. In this reply, he said, Jesus is both addressing the scholarly Jew and the unschooled oik. Now, I found that slightly offensive because uh, I see myself as an unschooled oik. But you can see what Jesus is doing. He's saying, ah, oh, you're languishing in prison, John. The crowds are listening. You're, you're full of the doubt of the bewildered disciple. Is this really it? There it is on the face. Look at the evidence. Listen to the teaching. Anybody can get hold of that. But John, I mean, you're a scholarly last prophet of the Old Testament. Go away and think about this. Isaiah 35, salvation. Isaiah 25, resurrection of the dead. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Proclaim good news to the poor. Am I the one who is to come? Of course I am. The works of the Christ. An old friend of ours, he's now um, sadly dead for about a decade, slightly longer, John Chapman, a great American, uh, Australian evangelist, a great Australian evangelist. I heard him speaking up at one of the universities once. He said, sometimes I wake up and wonder whether you know, it really is all true. And I'm lying there in bed, the alarm has gone off, is it all true? And so in order to remind myself, I go through the facts and the evidence. Do you believe Jesus was born in Nazareth? Yes, I still believe that. I wake up this morning, I still... Do you believe that Jesus did these extraordinary... Yeah, I still believe that. Yep, yep. Do you believe that Jesus died? Yeah, I still believe that. Do you believe he rose? Yeah, I still believe... And then he would say, rather uh, fun, well, get up, chap, and don't be such a lazy coot and get on with the day. So there's the base level. But then centuries of expectation and anticipation of one who would break into God's world the great poem of salvation in all of the Old Testament and rescue us. Are you the one who is to come? Shall we look for another? The works of the Christ? And then the challenge of chapter 8. Blessed. Blessed is the one who is not scandalized by me. The turning point of history, the works of the Christ. But then the, the turning point of history, I think we just got time for this, and the word of God. 
because Jesus then turns to the crowd in verse 7 as the disciples of John the Baptist went away. Jesus began to speak to the crowd concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What did you go out to see? A prophet. More than a prophet. Now, we've already noted that the Baptist was a figure of national and international note. What did the crowds make of him? He wasn't a weak man blowing this way and that, chopping and changing according to the direction of public opinion, was he? He wasn't a political operator bowing to the pressure of the poles. He said it as it is. Nor was he a soft man in the pay and thus in the pocket of the powerful, saying as a yes man, whatever the person who paid him wanted him to say. No, that's why he was beheaded. He was a man of steel. He was a hard man, rock hard, John the Baptist, a prophet, more than a prophet. Jesus now adds his authenticating stamp to the Baptist's personal claim. This is the last piece of really hard work that we have to do today. And have a look at verse 10, if you would. More than a prophet. Now look at this closely. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Now this is another remarkable statement of such egocentric nature that if it's not true, it is staggeringly arrogant. Malachi was the last prophet, the final prophet of the Old Testament era. He operated around 400 years before the coming of Jesus. His name simply means messenger. Malachi means messenger. His message from God was that God would visit his people. Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me, says God. God is coming to visit the earth. God says, my messenger is coming before me. He will prepare the way before me. Jesus takes the statement from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and he changes it, which on its own is pretty bold to take God's word and to change it. And I wonder if you can notice how he changes it. It's come up on the screen there for you. It's there on your notice sheet if you're interested. Instead of what Malachi 3.1 says, I send my messenger, he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord, that's God, will come. Jesus, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. So Jesus takes a statement that is undeniably about the coming of God, the creator of the universe, and his visitation to this planet. He acknowledges that God will send his messenger to declare the arrival of himself as the creator God as he comes to this earth. And he declares that that statement about God sending a messenger is actually about him, about Jesus. Now you go away and think about that. I mean, I don't think you can come across a more kind of arrogant claim if it's not true. I am God, come to visit the earth. And by the way, John the Baptist, this figure of immense fame and 
um, public recognition, the prophet, he's actually speaking about me. I've arrived. It is a claim to divinity. Sometimes one comes across individuals who suggest that Jesus never claimed to be God. It just doesn't wash. And so when we see those... uh, uh, people standing by the boards out on um, uh, on London Bridge or whatever it is, you know, oh, well, Jesus actually is just another human being. No, 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 no. He claimed to be God. And here is one place where you cannot escape that claim. So the word of God and the turning point of history. I, I think it's just 40 days till Christmas, shopping days, is it? Something like that. Uh, I hope you haven't worked it out. But anyway, I had a look, you know, Hail the incarnate deity. He came down to earth from heaven, who is God and Lord of all. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. The word became flesh. And that explains what Jesus says over the page in verse 11. Best translated, verse 11 reads like this. Well, it explains, sorry, why why he says verse 11. I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. The one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So while the Baptist is alive, he never witnesses the kingdom of God. He stands at the threshold. He has to send messengers from his prison cell. While he is alive, he heralds the arrival of the king. He doesn't see the enthronement of the king. While he's alive, he doesn't benefit in his lifetime from the blessings of the king. But those who are least in the kingdom, who come to the king, have everything that John the Baptist longed for. A friend of mine invented the mobile phone. Um, I think that's fair to say. He was the first person, together with a friend, who picked up a telephone with no wire in it and spoke to somebody in the same flat in different rooms. I mean, I ask him, what did it feel like? I mean, he says it was like, you know, hairs on the back of the neck moment. I mean, talk about a turning point. That was a turning point. And every time, you know, he must be fed up every time anybody meets him. I think they say, what was it actually like when you invented? Now, I want you to imagine that my friend... Um, died shortly after inventing it. He didn't. He's very much alive. If he's listening to this, I'm not wishing this upon you, if you're listening online or anything like that. But, But imagine he died very shortly afterwards. You'd have to say... That the greatest in the, the, the least, the least in the area of telecommunications was greater than this individual. Oh yeah, he pointed to it. He was the first person. He had something about this big. He was holding it in one room and the other guy was holding something this big in the other room. And now here we are and we've got all the blessings of it. The Baptist. Uh, the one who is least in the kingdom. This is such a turning point. Is greater than he. Experiences the forgiveness of sins. Has the blessing of knowing King Jesus. Has God's Holy Spirit dwelling within? The one who is least is greater. And verse 12 goes on to explain then that from the days of John the Baptist until now, this kingdom of heaven advances apace, 
even as others resist it. That's probably the best way of understanding that verse. It advances vigorously across the world, which is true. Everywhere you look, you see the gospel of King Jesus advancing, advancing, advancing across. Wherever it's proclaimed, it advances from the days of John the Baptist until now. Well, we must draw to a close. It's time uh, uh, to pull stumps, really. Just in conclusion... There are three occasions in these verses where Jesus addresses us. The first is there in verse 6. Blessed is the one who is not scandalized by me. The second is there in verse 15. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the central one is there in verse 11. The one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. And so I guess the question for us personally would be, will we be scandalized by Jesus? Will we be offended by him? Or will we line up with him? Will we have ears to hear? It's an extraordinary statement, that, isn't it? I mean, all of us looking around, I think all of us have got ears. But will we have ears to hear? Will we engage in deep listening? will we benefit from the kingdom? Because as we come to King Jesus, why, you and I could be considered greater than John the Baptist in terms of the blessing and privilege that we enjoy. Let me lead us in prayer. We praise you for the glorious salvation, our Father, that King Jesus has come to bring the reality ultimately, of a new creation where death is defeated, where all that wrecks this world is gone. And the reality today of knowing King Jesus for ourselves and being blessed with the benefit of his presence in our lives and the assurance of an eternal future. We pray, our Father, that you would grant us that deep listening, the ears to hear what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen.